Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We are in this, uh, we are continuing our series, Little by Little, Finding Your Identity in Christ. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And uh, while you're finding your place, if you want to, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you could download the YouVersion Bible app, and uh, you can uh, find the outline, the notes there. And if you don't want to do that because you're having poor cell service or you don't have room for another app on your phone, uh, then you can, uh, don't worry, we've got the verses up on the screen as well, so you can follow along with us as well. And I want to look in that camera and welcome everybody who's joining us online. We're so glad that you're making today a part of your day of getting into God's Word with us. We know you can't physically be here, but we are so glad that you're uh, making this part of your day to be with us. And uh, we are continuing this series called Little by Little, Finding Your Identity in Christ. And really what we're going to be looking at is uh, we're kind of going to do a quick review in verse 1, but we're going to be looking primarily at verses 2 through 6 today. And um, really what Paul is going to be getting at over the next 20 verses is he's going to be talking to us about a walk. That we're to walk in love, walk in light, and we're going to be walking in wisdom. And, uh, to, and so that's really where we're going to be going over the next several weeks. But today we're going to really focus in on this walk in love. And what does that look like to walk in love? And, and I was thinking about that word walk that Paul uses over and over again. And I was looking over and I, it reminds me of when my kids started learning how to walk. If you're a parent here, you might remember, have videotape of your kids taking some of their first steps. Uh, If you're not, if you don't have kids, uh, you've probably been around kids who've started to take their first steps. I remember my kids, they would pull themselves up on that couch and they would get this big gummy grin and, you know, be so happy and might even shake their booties a little bit because they finally figured out what these things called legs do. And so they got very happy and excited And what they would do is they might let go of that couch and they might, oh, you know, kind of like, I don't know. And they go back and grab that couch or they would let go of, they would hold onto the table and they would let go and they take step one, step two, they take step three and four. And what do we do as parents? We go, that's good. Come here. Come to me. And they walk to us. That's really what Paul is trying to get at here. He's encouraging us and reminding us how to walk spiritually speaking. See, when we surrendered our lives to Jesus, we have to remember that we are his kids, that we're to walk, we're to imitate him. And there's going to be times in our lives where we're walking, spiritually speaking, and you know what it's like. You're going to stumble and fall at times, just like our kids learning how to walk. They didn't master it right away. You know, they might have started taking step four and five and six and seven and go, I don't know what I'm doing. And what do they do? They fall right on their butts, right? What do we not do as parents? We didn't say, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Why didn't you just keep going? We didn't do that. Even still, as an adult, we still stumble and fall walking, right? Like there's times Jen will trip and I'll be like, how long have you been walking for? You know, I tripped the other day going up the stairs in our garage and I went, man, after 37 years, you think I'd have walking down by now, right? But we don't. We still stumble and fall. And you know what it's like when you get older. You have to do a whole systems check, right? Am I bleeding anywhere? Are the ribs okay? Do I have a concussion? You know, we're trying to make sure that we're okay. And the same is true for us spiritually speaking. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you've been walking with the Lord for a short amount of time, 
there's still times when we stumble and we fall and we struggle with sin. We never learn to stop walking well. We're still trying to figure it out. Listen, this is going to kind of phrase our conversation today, our, our talk, the message today. It says, a godly walk doesn't mean the lack of sin. A godly walk means experiencing victory in the presence of a very real struggle. Because we all struggle with sin. But in our struggle with sin, we can have victory in our relationship with Jesus. And that's really what Paul's going to be talking about today. In fact, the title of today's message is Love, Sex, and the Kingdom of God. Now, I love that kids are in here. I was a kid that uh, I, I, in Albuquerque, my parents brought me in when I was in the third grade. I was sitting in service hearing uh, our pastor back in Albuquerque teach from when I was a young age. And so I love when kids are in here, but I'm going to say this, we're going to be talking a little bit about sex. And so if you have young kids here today and you feel a little uncomfortable about that topic, in a minute, I'm going to start reading Ephesians chapter 5. And you can uh, leave if you want to. You can check your kids and awaken kids. But um, I'm going to keep it as PG as possible. I don't think there's going to be anything too offensive, but I just want to give that warning. I don't know how you're talking to your kids about it, but I just want to give that warning up front. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You can tell by these verses that this is going to be a heavy type of message. The Paul's not really holding back. He's just telling it like it is. And sometimes we need to hear what he's saying. Sometimes we need to be reminded of some truths. He's trying to say, hey, as you're trying to walk with your heavenly father, there's some things that you need to be reminded of. There's some things that you need to be encouraged in to do and to not to do. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about commands, that there are commands in scripture that God gives us. When God says, don't do something, God isn't trying to rob us of all the joy and pleasure of doing that thing. What he's saying is, don't hurt yourself. But when God says, do something, he's saying, live life to the fullest. Enjoy everything there is. God and his love is giving us these commands. And really the first command we looked at was verse one that you have a perfect father who is worth imitating. So do what good kids do and imitate your father. And so now he kind of narrows that focus a little bit and he starts to tell us some ways that we can imitate our father and he gets really specific and he tells us that we are to imitate him in love. And so we've got, I've got some thoughts as we break apart this passage for us today and the first one is this. We live lives of love and sacrifice because that's what Jesus did for us. We live lives of love and sacrifice because that's what Jesus did for us. Verse one, he's saying, hey, imitate your father. But then he gets specific and he says this in verse two, and walk or live in love as, that's the command there, as 
Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, what is love? If you're like me, you've been singing that song this whole week. Like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't. Okay, maybe nobody knows it. I don't know. I love that. I've been singing that song all day, all week. Like, it's starting to get annoying to me, right? But what is love? What does it mean? What is this type of love that he's talking about? It is a complete giving love. It's a self-sacrificing love. Paul is saying, if you want to be imitators of God, you must imitate him in this self-sacrificing kind of love. But what does this love look like? Well, Paul's telling us Jesus is our model. The way that Jesus loves is the model for how we should all walk, how we should all live in this self-sacrificing kind of love. But when we look at our world, our world seems a little confused with the definition of love. The world could define love as an emotional feeling. It could be an emotion based off of the here and now. How do I feel right now? That determines how much I love. It could be described as lust. I think we could look at our uh, movie industry and see that Hollywood and, and movies are very confused on what the definition of love is. Songs even today seem very confused on what the definition of love is. I thought about that today or this week, and I, I was reminded, like, there seems to be a lot of songs now about how guys and girls can just hook up. And I thought, man, the Beatles back in the 60s, all they wanted to do was hold your hand. <laughs> and so we kind of see there's this kind of degrading. The world is confused with their definition of love. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? Even when we're talking to one another, we're a little confused with love, Right? We say, I love football, I love pizza, I love my kids, I love my spouse, I love God. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say that you love God more than you love pizza or football. But here in the Greek, the word love that Paul is using is agape love. If you've been to church for any length of time, you know what this sounds like. There's three ways to describe love. It's agape love, eros love, and uh, phileo, right? And so agape love is this love, this unconditional love. In English, we only have one word to describe love, and that is love. But the word that Paul is using here is a willing, unconditional, sacrificing kind of love. Listen, God cannot love you more or less than he loves you right now. God does not love Nate Wittick because Nate Wittick is lovable. Ask my wife. Sometimes I'm not that lovable. I think I am, but I'm not always that lovable. God loves me because of who I am in Christ. And who I am in Christ has made me accepted and loved. God isn't a God who puts conditions on how he loves. He is unconditional. And this could be really hard for our hearts and our minds to understand because our nature isn't wired this way. Our nature is to hate, to lie, to cheat, Listen, God doesn't have to command us to do those things. Those things are just natural for us to do. But God does have to command us to love because that goes against our nature. Now, we can love conditionally, which is a love that's expecting just as much in return as I'm giving out. But that's not the command we're called to live out here. The command we're to act out, to live out, is this unconditional, self-sacrificing, giving kind of love. And Paul is telling that because he's pointing us all the way back to the cross. He's telling us, hey, do you remember the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me? 
He's saying, hey, Jesus bore some beatings before he even got to the cross. His body was whipped and broken. And then he crawled onto that cross and he had nails in his hands and his feet. He willingly, self-sacrificially went to the cross to die for everyone in this world so that anyone who would believe would get to know him and experience this love. He willingly and self-sacrificially gave his love knowing full well that not everyone would return that love back to him. I wonder if you've ever thought about that before. That Jesus paid the penalty for every single person on this planet. And there still would be some who will never receive or experience his love. But Jesus did it anyways. Knowing that it may not be reciprocated back. And some of us, we've given our lives to Jesus. We've entered into this relationship with him. We've responded to the self-sacrificing love and said, God, because you first loved me, now I love you back. But we don't live lives of sacrifice to those around us. Even though that's what Jesus did for us. See, our response should be because Jesus has showed love, because his love has changed us, our love for others should burst into every other aspect of our lives. And if you don't live that way, that could be a sign that points to you the fact that you've never experienced God's love to begin with. Here's the thing. The way we love God and others is critical to how we walk in the self-sacrificial kind of love. But people make this hard to do. I mean, it's easy to love God. God, it's your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, the fact you adopted me. It's so easy to love God. But we're to love other people around us with this self-sacrificing love that we've already been shown. And here's the reality. When we um, love God with this self-sacrificing kind of love, love others with this giving kind of love, Paul tells us in verse 2 that it's a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think we all want our lives to smell good to God, right? Nothing can ruin your day like a bad odor. You know what it's like. You get to work, somebody's got B.O. You get to school, somebody's got B.O. You get on a plane, somebody's got B.O. And you're like, this is the worst. You can't wait to get off the plane. You can't wait to be done with class. You can't be, you might actually go work from home that day because you can't stand it that much. You're sitting in church right now and maybe the person next to you, their clothes didn't dry all that well and they're kind of shifting and moving and you just get this poof of the sour smell right now. And I'm seeing you and I feel like you're crying because you're like, the Lord is speaking to me and, and, and I'm like, oh, the message is hitting home, but you're crying because you can't breathe. That's what's happening right now. Or, you know, you know what it's like, too, that um, you have friends, and they're the close talkers, right? You've got those friends. They're always up in your face, and they've always got something to say, and they believe in coffee, and they don't believe in gum, and you're listening to them, and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you're just trying to get some clean air. But the opposite is true as well. Just as much as a bad odor can ruin our day, a good odor can make our day better. I love it when I come home being stressed out and uh, Jen's lit some candles and it smells so nice. It reminds me of fall. It takes me back and it relaxes me and it calms me. Jen and I, we were talking this week too about how in high school I had a sweater that I sprayed with my cologne so that when we were apart, she had something to remind her of my love for her. It might be creepy. It might be too mushy. I don't know what it is. Maybe more creepy side, but we love good smells. 
And so we want our lives to be a sweet smell to God. And that's only when we live lives of love and sacrifice because that's what Jesus did for us. If you want to imitate your father, imitate him in the self-sacrificing, giving love. Now, the next set of commands are really the opposite of the self-sacrificing love. And verses three through five are really the opposite of everything that Paul is about to talk about. And what Paul is addressing here is really a selfish love or worshiping yourself over God. And this is our second thought for today. Living selfishly does not fit with the love of God. Living selfishly does not fit with the love of God. Selfishness is at the heart of sin. Every sin is an expression of selfishness. Look at verse 3. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. See, God gives us a command here in verse 3 because God's saying, I don't want you to hurt yourself. And some of us, we can read this list and we realize that we probably hurt some people with this. Or other people have hurt us with this list. But the command here is an interesting one because you think Paul would just simply say, hey, don't do these things and just kind of keep moving on. But he doesn't do that. The command here is this. These sins must not even be named among you. We could say it this way. That no one should be able to say these things about you and think about your face or think about your name as the definition of these sins. And so Paul uses three terms, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness to describe the opposite of the self-giving, self-sacrificing love that we just talked about. So let's define what these words mean. Sexual immorality and impurity are two words that go together in the Bible. Together, they describe sexual interaction with someone you're not married to. Covetousness is in this context described as any sexual thought or desire towards someone that you're not married to. Now, just for simplicity's sake, we're just going to lump them all together and just call them lust. Because that's what lust is. Lust would be defined as any sexual expression or desire towards someone that you're not married to. And Paul is telling us, these things should not be named among you. I love how the NIV translates this verse. It says, there shouldn't even be a hint of these things. And I love that because how often do we try to see how close can we get to the line without completely falling into that sin? We ask ourselves, well, how far is too far? Because we want to know. I want to get real close to the line. I don't want to fall into it, but I want to see how close I can get to that line. You know, over the last several weeks here, it feels like it's been raining almost every day. And when me and the kids were in the parking lot, they see puddles and they love to jump in puddles. And I'll tell them, don't jump in the puddles. Don't get your feet wet because I don't want their feet to get cold. I don't want their shoes to get ruined. I don't want the car to get dirty because they're going to get disgusting. Who knows what's in that puddle of water as well. But what do they like to do? They like to get as close to that puddle as they can. They're just looking at me. They're thinking, how far is too far, dad? They might even dip their toes in it a little bit because they're wondering how far is too far. And many of us, when we see this, we're wondering how far is too far. And I think the point that Paul is trying to make here is we need to be as pure as possible. Meaning not only should we avoid sexual sin, we should even avoid the appearance of sexual sin. 
Now, I want to hit pause here for a minute because there's some of you here today. You don't know Jesus, and this is confirming every stereotype about Christianity that you've ever thought. Like, see, here's a bunch of Christians just trying to get into people's sex lives and ruin everything for us. But if you're thinking that way, I want you to look a little closer at what this verse is saying. Who is Paul saying all of this to? Who is he saying that these sins should not be named among? The saints, Christians, followers of Jesus. So Paul's assumption isn't that everyone in the world would accept God's standard of sex. His assumption is that followers of Jesus would accept God's standard of sex. So if you're not following Jesus, I would expect Paul's instruction here, what he's saying, to not make any sense to you. I would expect you to think of God's standard of sex to seem a little weird and unnecessary because you're missing the most important piece of the puzzle, and that's a relationship with Jesus, who Jesus is, and why he would ask us to do something like this in the first place. So there shouldn't even be a hint of lust among followers of Jesus. Because lust is the opposite of what love is. Love, like we said, is a giving, self-sacrificing kind of love. Lust is motivated by getting. Everything here in verse 3 at its core is using the other person for what you can get. I love how one pastor puts it. He says, lust says, what can you do for me? Love says, what can I do for you? Now, some of you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, well, you know, my boyfriend and I or my girlfriend and I, we love each other. It's consensual sex. It's not a big deal. We just love each other. Which I think is just another way of just saying I'm in lust with you. Because I think really what Paul would say is, hey, great, you love each other? You want to have sex? Get married. Ah, I'm not sure that I'm ready for that. I'm not sure that I'm ready for that kind of commitment. Then I think you're not ready to get married yet. Because you and I know what having sex is when you're not married. You could just leave at any kind of moment. Others might be thinking, well, you know, we're not really hurting anyone right now. Not hurting anyone? What about the millions of babies who are aborted? What about mothers who have to carry around the guilt or shame of having an abortion? What about STDs, HIV, AIDS? You'll get hurt. And the point that he's trying to say, the command here is you're going to hurt someone or you're going to hurt yourself because this is a selfish kind of love. See, sex is supposed to be a oneness of your bodies that's then followed by a oneness in every other area of your life. I'm not going to get graphic here. I'll try to leave it a little PG. But when you're having sex, you become one person physically. And that oneness is supposed to be matched in a oneness in every other area of your life. A oneness that's supposed to be shared emotionally and spiritually. You become a complete part of that other person. And you do it for life. See, that's why there's no such thing as a one-night stand. When you have sex outside of marriage, you are taking a physical oneness from someone without giving them yourself. It's unbelievably selfish. Your body is telling them one thing, I'm yours. But that's not true. You're not really joining the rest of you to them. Don't think God is some prude who's trying to ruin all your fun, just trying to get in the way of things, because don't forget this, God invented sex. He created it. It was his idea. 
God gave you a sex drive. It's not bad. It's not evil. In the right context, it's good. It can even be blessed by the Lord. The only place that sex will be blessed is in the marriage relationship. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian and you've fallen into this sin and you're thinking, well, I guess I can't be forgiven. No, you can be forgiven. You just have to turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. But this is what I'm saying. If you continue in this sin and you do not repent, you will face judgment for it. See, sin can be fun. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. The Bible says that there's pleasure in sin for a time. But listen, it comes with a heavy price tag. Are you involved in premarital sex? Then stop. It's not worth it. We shouldn't do it. Are you in an affair or thinking about having an affair? Stop it. It should not even be named among you. Listen, a few moments of pleasure can result in a lifetime of regret. Living selfishly does not fit with the love of God. And what these sins in verse 3 say about you, if that's you, is that you're all about seeing how other people can meet your needs. But then he goes on in verse 4. And he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For Paul, it's not just how we engage in sex, but how we talk about sex. Just like we shouldn't participate sex in a way that cheapens it, we also shouldn't talk about sex in a way that cheapens it. So let's describe, let's break out what some of these uh, words mean, just like we did in verse 3. Filthiness is any type of sexually obscene behavior. It, it, it can include sexual gestures towards people, being sexually explicit in conversations for no reason. Foolish talk can be defined as spilling intimate details of our sex life. Crude joking would refer to telling jokes that, aren't, that are only really funny because they're dirty or, ways, or jokes that just objectify women. All these things refer to how we talk about sex. And Paul's point that he's trying to make here in verse 4 is the way we talk about things over time shapes what we think of them. For example, if you call your wife the old ball and chain or the old lady, eventually that's going to impact how you relate with her. If you call your husband a bum, a moron, a caveman, that's going to affect the way that you think and relate to him. In the same way, if we talk about sex that's trivial, insignificant, we're eventually going to believe and live like that's true. And so what Paul is trying to say, what God's word is telling us, the command here is, don't talk about sex in these ways. But God's saying, do this instead. Give thanks. Now, when I read that this week, I was like, what does giving thanks have to do with any of this? Why would he throw this in the middle of this list of six different sins here? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized this, that lust is driven by the desire of what we don't have, but giving thanks is pr um, practicing contentment with what we do have. Paul is saying, give thanks. Giving thanks is a cure to lust. The more that we develop thankfulness for what we do have, the less likely we're to obsess over the things that we don't have. I'm just taking a guess here, a shot in the dark maybe, 
And many of us don't regularly thank God for inventing sex. And according to verse 4, maybe that should change. And then he goes on in verse 5. He circles back to the same words. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Here's our last idea for today. If we live in sin, then we will not share in God's kingdom. If we live in sin, then we're not going to share in God's kingdom. See, Paul reiterates, he says the same three sins again, but he takes it up a notch. He says that anyone who practices these, these things does not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what this means. If you're, in, if you're content with the presence of these sins in your life, you are not a follower of Jesus, no matter how much you think you are. No matter how meaningful that prayer was that you prayed to receive Jesus. If you're content with these things, then you're not a follower of Jesus. No matter how much you read God's word, no matter how many times you read the Bible cover to cover, no matter how much you give, no matter how much you serve, no matter what you do in your life, if you are unmoved and unresponsive with the sexual sin in your life, what the Bible is telling us is that you're not a follower of Jesus. Now take a deep breath. This is heavy stuff. To be clear, Paul isn't saying that if you've ever been guilty of lust, then you're not a follower of Jesus. And here's why. One, remember, he's writing this letter to a group of people, Christians in Ephesus, and he's warning them against it. So obviously, he expects at least some of them to be struggling with these things. But two, what he describes here are not isolated struggles, but an ongoing contentment with these things. So Paul isn't saying, if you've messed up once with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that means you're not a Christian. He's not saying, well, if you've ever looked at pornography, well, then you're not a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But what he is saying is if by messing up with your boyfriend or girlfriend is actually just living with them or being sexually active with them, and you're just okay with that, you're not unmoved by any of that, you're like, it's fine. He's saying, well, then you're probably not a Christian and you won't receive that inheritance in the kingdom of God. If you're looking at porn as a regular pattern of your life and you felt unmoved to do anything about it, well, then you're probably not a follower of Jesus. To sum up verse five, what he's getting at is there is a massive difference between struggling with sin and settling into sin. We can say that we want God to be a part of our lives. We want God to save us. We're going to say, well, God, I'm just going to keep doing this stuff over here on the side. It's not that bad. This doesn't care that much. Every follower of Jesus struggles with sin. But what Paul is saying is that as a follower of Jesus, we don't settle into sin. We could say it this way. If you're a Christian, you can't still pursue sin and pursue God at the same time. I want to close with verse 6. And it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Hang on to that phrase, empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul's like, Listen, people are going to try to tell you that this stuff isn't a big deal. You might even tell yourself, Ah, this can't be that big of a deal. I mean, everybody's doing it, everybody's messing around. It can't matter that much. God would never expect me to deny myself or deprive myself like this. 
Because the reality is in our world, there's no shortage of internal or external defenses when it comes to sexual sin. And what Paul is saying is don't buy into these things. Don't buy into that empty logic that people are selling you. Sex is too powerful and too important to let people blind you to that fact. So he's saying don't be deceived. Now I know today's message is a hard one to hear. It's a hard one to give. But the thing you need to know about Awakened Church is if it's in God's word, we're going to teach it like such. That's always been one of our values here, that we're going to teach God's word. There have been plenty of times, there's some things that I would rather not talk about, but we're going to address them. If there was ever a class about how to grow a church, this text would not crack the top 100, all right? You wouldn't touch this thing because this stuff is tough. It's countercultural. It slaps us right in the face where we're at. It convicts us. But listen, I didn't want to come up here today and preach empty words to you. That's why I wanted to close with this, because I love that phrase, empty words. Because it would have been real easy for me to come up here and just focus in on verse 2, talk all about God's love, which is great, and we do that here. It's great to be reminded of God's love and what he's done for us, and I could have skimmed over the rest of the verses here, but I would have been preaching empty words to you. When God calls followers... What did he tell them to do? He said, pick up your cross and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. We have to die to ourselves. So I didn't want to come up here today and teach you a bunch of empty words just so that we could fill up Awakened Church because what I would be doing is filling up Awakened Church with people who have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Some of you, you're here today and you're playing games with God. You've never seriously come to Christ and made him Lord. And because of that, you do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who genuinely are trying to pursue Jesus. You have guardrails in your life. You struggle with sin, but you're honest with your spouse about it. You're setting up people in your lives for accountability. You're trying to live as pure of a life as possible. I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about those of you who think you belong to the kingdom of God, but you will not give up that relationship. You will not give up that uh, pornography habit. You will not uh, give up that affair that you're in. If you are genuinely repentant of your sin, if you're, if you're not genuinely repentant of your sin, then you are not saved and you have no inheritance. Some religions would teach you, well, that if you just do more good, that'll outweigh the bad. You know, don't worry about it. Just at the end, just make sure the scales balance more good than bad. But the gospel says the only way that you come to God is through complete surrender, and it's only through Jesus. Remember that phrase I told you, a godly walk doesn't mean the absence of sin. A godly walk means experiencing victory in the presence of a very real struggle. Jesus can give us victory in that struggle. See, the heart of verses 1 through 6, really what it's getting at is lordship. Who's the Lord of your life? Are you willing to obey these commands? See, the commands we just talked about aren't things for you to go home, pray about, say, Lord, is this what you would have for my life? These are things that we're called to obey. And so really the heart of these verses is, who's the boss of your life? 
Who's the Lord of your life? Is God Lord of all or is he Lord not at all? Who's the boss of your life? Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.